0: From public disasters to personal demons, our patients, and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. You're listening to XM 233 the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Don Hudson. Dr. Hudson is a psychiatrist, retired Air Force medical officer and the medical advisor to the Airline Pilots Association, the largest pilot union in the United States. He comes to us today from Denver, Colorado. Today, we're discussing PTSD, implications, and recognition. Don, thanks for being with us, and maybe we could start with a little bit of your background and current responsibilities.
1: Currently, I'm the uh, director of the Aeromedical Office for the Airline Pilots Association, which, as you mentioned in your introduction, is the largest pilot union for professional pilots in the United States. Our office is located in Denver, Colorado, and we have uh, six physicians on staff here and about eight administrative personnel. By way of background, I'm a 1978 graduate of the Mayo Medical School in Rochester, Minnesota, and I did a psychiatric residency at the University of California, San Francisco, and served uh, one year as a teaching assistant in psychiatry, at Boston University before uh, joining the uh, U.S. Air Force on active duty in 1982 as an aviation medicine physician. In the uh, military vernacular, it's commonly called a flight surgeon, although I am not a surgeon of any sort. I did uh, two operational assignments in the Air Force before completing a residency in aerospace medicine at Brooks Air Force Base in Texas. My last active duty uh, stint in the Air Force was as a exchange flight surgeon at the NASA Ames Research Center in Sunnyvale, California. And I joined the staff here at ALPA in late summer uh, 1987. So I've been here 20 years ago this summer.
0: And Don, I know that in your current job, you advise the pilots union about medical issues. I'm particularly interested in the range of psychiatric issues you see in this population. What kinds of things have you seen over the years?
1: Just like any other professional group, like doctors or lawyers, uh, Airline pilots uh, do suffer from psychiatric disease. About 25% of the cases that we deal with here in Denver are of a psychiatric nature. Of that 25%, uh, about half involve clinical depression. Approximately 25% are adjustment disorders and uh, family problems and things of that nature. About 10% anxiety disorders, 10 to 12% uh, substance abuse which in, among airline pilots is overwhelmingly um, alcohol dependence, and then a hodgepodge of um, other psychiatric conditions that are much less common.
0: So in that spectrum, where does PTSD fit? Do you see much of that? Is it an issue for your practice?
1: PTSD is not a common psychiatric condition among airline pilots. In fact, it probably encompasses only about 2 to 3% of our, uh, our psychiatric cases that we see here in Denver. However, it is a, um, what we call a very lethal condition in regards to pilots holding their FAA medical certificates uh, just because of the nature of the symptoms. So even though it's not big in numbers, it's important in terms of implications for the pilots who develop it.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about it. How do you see the essential features of that disorder?
1: Post-traumatic stress disorder, the essential feature really is the development of um, uh, characteristic symptoms following exposure to an extreme traumatic stressor or event, and usually that would involve actual or threatened death or dismemberment of yourself or another person that you're actually either there at the event yourself or witnessing it. And in civilian life, that often means a family member or a close associate. In terms of the person's reaction to this event, it also must involve intense fear, helplessness, or a sense of horror. The characteristic symptoms that people develop uh, really are are three main ones. The persistent unwanted re-experiencing of the traumatic event is the first one. The second one is a a consequent persistent avoidance of any stimuli associated with the trauma and a numbing of sort of general emotional responsiveness to uh, emotional events in in your ordinary life. And the third one really is um, persistent symptom of increased arousal, sometimes uh, known as hypervigilance, that the individual will
0: have. Well, Don, we've traditionally thought of PTSD among the military and combatants. It sounds like, in fact, it can be recognized uh, as well among noncombatants. Historically, has PTSD been recognized uh, and treated among noncombatants?
1: To answer that question, you have to keep in mind that, historically speaking, the military Services have taken the lead in both the recognition and treatment of PTSD, and that accelerated quite a bit after the U.S. experience in in the Vietnam War. It early on was called combat stress and things like that, but but it got recognized as a a true psychiatric syndrome in the the late 60s and early 70s. In the civilian realm, it also began to be recognized that this sort of uh, psychiatric syndrome does happen to people who have traumatic events that are not related to combat.
0: You are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Don Hudson, and we're talking about implications and recognition of PTSD. So Don, you're talking about civilians and its recognition. I wonder if you might take us a little bit back to your specialty, that is pilots, and maybe compare the nature and the frequency of PTSD in your group before and after uh,
1: 9-11. Among our group of professional pilots, um, PTSD first came to have general recognition uh, following a, um, an airline accident in 1989 uh, with Aloha Airlines where literally the roof of a 737 uh, came off and Uh, Fortunately, there was only one fatality uh, in that and the airplane was uh, brought safely back for landing. But the two crew members involved in that both had initial symptoms of acute stress reaction, but then one of the crew members developed classic uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and it was delayed onset, meaning full year after the event itself. And and that crew member eventually got to our office and, and that really triggered more recognition among the pilot group that this can happen in civilian aviation as well.
0: So that was quite a bit before 9-11. What's changed since then? Have you seen more of it? Is it more prevalent? Or are you guys just getting better at diagnosing it?
1: Well, a couple of things have happened. Obviously, 9-11 was a very traumatic event for the country as a whole, but for uh, professional airline pilots, it was uh, particularly traumatic in the sense that obviously attacks involved aviation, And among the uh, airline pilot population, there was also a a great sense of betrayal, if you will, from the standpoint of uh, hijacking security training up until the the 9-11 attacks was really centered on keeping the aircraft intact and and basically satisfying any hijackers' demands to go to a particular place and and land. And obviously, with this sort of attack, uh, that was all changed, and as I'm sure you're aware, One of the first things that happened when the hijackers took control of the aircraft was to uh, kill the pilots. So that was a very traumatic event for our professional group as a whole. I sat down on the evening of 9-11, that Tuesday evening, and wrote down what I thought we would expect to see in terms of extra pathology, both acute stress reaction and post-traumatic stress uh, disorder as well. And as it turned out, I overestimated it uh, quite a bit. We didn't see quite as much. But... Since the 9-11 attacks, there has been a a general increase in post-traumatic stress disorder among airline pilots, and that's not particularly unexpected.
0: Our colleagues who are in primary care today, what patients might they consider this diagnosis in other than pilots or other than people who are coming back from Iraq and the military? Any other groups that you might be concerned about?
1: Obviously, you mentioned the folks who are coming back from the combat zones, uh, and, and that's probably where primary care uh, physician would see the, the most cases. But there are others, people who are immigrating to the United States uh, from countries where there's a lot of social unrest or civil wars, rape victims, and folks who are victims of domestic violence or other types of physical assaults, you would see them in a primary care setting. You would also see them, I think, in terms of uh, the aftermath of natural disasters uh, or even uh, severe motor vehicle accidents. Among other kind of professions where you would see it perhaps more routinely are policemen, firemen, and uh, healthcare uh, first responders.
0: Which sort of makes me think about our recent tragedy in Minneapolis. Would you expect there to be PTSD in any of the survivors or first responders from that group or any other group?
1: Well, I think those uh, groups that you mentioned would be at at extra risk for development of PTSD. And uh, I'm sure the uh, authorities uh, in, in Minnesota are well aware of that and are monitoring those people closely. It's folks who are involved in the traumatic event itself and survive, close witnesses, And then the responder personnel are the ones who are at the most increased risk for uh, developing the symptoms.
0: We've been talking about this disease and people who might be susceptible to it. Is it a disability? Is it very disabling among people? Is there a spectrum of symptoms? And, And if you're a primary care provider, how do you go about trying to recognize it in the first place? Any questions or anything in the history of physical that might clue you in?
1: question directly, there is a spectrum, obviously, in any syndrome, psychiatric syndrome like this, uh, from mild to moderate to severe, and I think one thing to keep in mind that's somewhat unique to PTSD among psychiatric conditions is that you can have what's called delayed onset, meaning the symptoms themselves may not appear for uh, six, seven, eight months after the actual traumatic event so that when you see a patient develop unusual anxiety or the hypervigilance, and if you're lucky enough to have them actually express to you that they feel they're re-experiencing a traumatic event, um, it's good to ask. Um, And just because the event itself happened many months ago doesn't mean that they can't develop the symptom complex.
0: And is it possible that the event uh, not only is long ago but might not seem to the physician a very serious one or one that would cause PTSD?
1: That can happen, but usually that's a result of not perhaps understanding and getting a good a good history from the patient themselves uh, about what the event meant to them. Most of the time with PTSD, it's something that's, uh, that anyone would recognize as a traumatic event, particularly when it involves a family member or someone close to you.
0: Any um, particular cases that stand out to you that have come to uh successful resolution or maybe unsuccessful that you think about when you think of this disease in your population?
1: In our population of um, professional pilots, there have been a few cases that have stood out over the years. Uh, a couple in returning combat veterans who had really horrific experiences developed the uh, the syndrome complex and basically uh, either denied the symptoms or hid them for, for many months. And the longer the symptom complex is entrenched, the harder it is to treat successfully. And those are the cases that I think have the most regret, if you will, of not being able to reach those people sooner uh, to get them to appropriate treatment, because it, it can be successfully treated. And in the majority of folks, that's exactly what happens.
0: I want to thank Dr. Don Hudson, who's been our guest today. We've been discussing PTSD, implications, and recognition. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals.